This morning I'd like to hold before your mind the honor of singleness. And I want to get at it in a way that might seem surprising to you, and that is to get at it through sex. And that's because in our culture today, I think it's fair to say that if sex doesn't define everything, it it seeks to do so. Everything from buying cars to pants to what you may or may not do in college or on and on and on and on. Sex is everywhere. It's in our music and rap and pop and country and rock. It shows up in every genre of television. Ads on TV and online emphasize sex appeal to sell products. In the United States alone, the internet pornography business generates 13 billion with a B, 13 billion dollars a year. This is bigger than professional football, basketball, and baseball combined. One study shows that the onslaught of sexualized images in the media and pop culture has created a mental health crisis. One psychologist explains it this way. She says, I meet hundreds of women who struggle with their body image or sexuality. These struggles throw up in depression, anxiety, eating disorders, mental disorders, especially mental disorders. This is sort of new. It's a new thing that that, uh, therapists and psychologists are seeing. And there's a big fancy word for it. But essentially a mental disorder characterized by an obsessive preoccupation with some aspect of one's appearance that we think is severely flawed and thus warrants exceptional measures to hide it or fix it. Tends to be a female thing, but not always. But men are not excluded from this this sort of sexual psychological dilemma. The same therapist says that increasing numbers of men are dealing with relationship issues and loneliness. Many men are starving for real human connection, but are only being taught to satiate their hunger in empty and unfulfilling ways. So the broken idea, I think, that is an overtone, and undertone of our sense of singleness is this, that human wholeness is only possible through sexual relationships. Therefore, if you're not having all the sex of whatever type you crave, then something's wrong with you. And this then leads to an idolatry, and I want you to hear that word carefully, an actual idolatry in which sexual gratification is the primary end of human existence. So that's sort of going on out there. It's in the air we breathe. And then we come into a place like this that says, but hold on, sex is only for marriage. And this is an incredible then built-in frustration and self-accusation for many single people that they are less than whole. But the Bible actually has a very unique and freeing viewpoint about this. I heard a talk uh, where Tim Keller made a couple of points that I think are, are great, and they're, they're sort of background bits. And, and that's this, that in our part of the world, that is to say the kind of the secular West, that marriage is often sought as an individual right to happiness. So that then being married is really just an end to self-realization. Now, I'm not saying always, but often. Now, catch this. This is what has led to it becoming then a disposable asset. If marriage is first and foremost, in my mind, a way for my own self-actualization, well, then when it's no longer working, when he or she is no longer self-actualizing me, game over. 
And then we have then this culture of sort of endless divorce and trying to realize myself in another. Well, in the other part of the world, sort of the non-West, speaking of it roughly, it says something completely different. It says you're nothing if you're not married with children because that means you have no legacy, you're actually a dishonor to your family. There's an old Jewish saying that says this, any man who has no wife is no proper man. I mean, that's the burden in very much of the world. That world that you know about with arranged marriages and all that kind of stuff, that's the huge burden. And oftentimes in our world today, single people in the church are kind of caught between those two things so that often they feel like second-class members of the church. Well, in the passage we read this morning, Paul rejects both of these hurtful views and holds up singleness as a viable way of Christian life, saying that single Christians, as they reject the labels of culture and find their identity in Christ, should not be looked upon with suspicion, but rather with full acceptance and with affirmation. But what was happening and that is going on underneath this text, like, remember when that last line that Andy read, and I too think I have the Spirit? What's happening in the Corinthian conversation is that there were people who are claiming super spirituality and super insights from the spirit and that they were even like angels already and were making all these claims then about singleness and marriage and sex. And Paul's rejecting that point of view and saying that Christian spirituality does not equal abstention, this sort of strict abstention from all sorts of pleasure. That's what the super spiritual were saying. And then Paul was also surrounded by Stoics who were saying, no, we should all live aloof from the world, including marriage and sex. But this is Paul performing precisely as like an apostolic leader, an apostolic teacher. And he's trying to do something here. He's trying to shift their perspective to a spirituality that would be rooted in the end. You know, the technical term for that is the eschaton, the end. And so here's what Paul's thinking, and this gets it, I can't get too deep in this, we don't have time, but this is what Paul means when, he start, when he's talking about the distress of the last times and all that. What Paul's picturing is, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated in Jesus. It's gonna be completed really soon. Therefore, the time is shortened. Everything is compressed. So think about your house is on fire and you've only got like two minutes to pick things to get out. It's that kind of thing that Paul's thinking, the Lord's coming back soon. Therefore, that's what ought to be the worldview that dictates how we think about these things, how to please the Lord. So Paul's thinking is that if we can live and make our choices of any kind, economic or sexual or marriage or single, based on the notion that the Lord is coming, that will that will sort of, as a matter of byproduct, make people more Christ-centered, more kingdom-minded, more spirit-enabled. And so what Paul's doing in this passage really is calling for a radical new way of relating to the world. And that includes married or engaged or singled. By the way, the word virgin here is a, is a really technical word. I mean, this is actually a very hard passage. I mean, you read any of the commentators and they'll tell you this is one of the hardest passages of the New Testament for a lot of reasons. And one of them is the word virgin, for instance. It doesn't mean what we think of as technically virgin. I mean, it includes that. But uh, you know how every culture has its words? Like we say, oh, that's so rad. 
And when we say, oh, that's so rad, everybody knows what we mean, right? Well, virgin was a woman who was betrothed, often in an arranged marriage, to a man. And so that's what Paul has in mind here. It's like, wow, what should all of you do who are trying to wholeheartedly follow Christ, who are in these arranged relationships, and the Lord's coming soon, what should we do about this? So Paul's thinking something like this. The future has already begun. The spirit is here. This is the age that all of our forefathers for thousands of years waited for. And this presence of the future is the thing that ought to determine our entire lifestyle in the present. So I like the way Eugene gets this in the message. He has Paul saying, look, I'm trying to be helpful here. And I'm trying to make it as easy as possible for you. All I want is for you to be able to develop a way of life in which you can spend plenty of time together with the master and without a lot of distractions. But this gets at one of the hardest parts of this passage, and that is, what is it saying about Christian spirituality? And it's not saying that Christian spirituality is lived disconnected from the world. This is what the passage means when it says we marry or not, we mourn, we buy, we make use of the world, but catch this, those things don't determine our existence. What Paul wants to determine our existence is this future that has come into our present through Christ, especially death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. His teachings, his miracles, his manner of being in the world. Paul's saying that future which has come into our present ought to be the determinative lens through which we see life and make uh, choices. Now, I think this is really important, especially for those of you who really only see Paul as the person who gave us justification by faith. And you sort of have Paul pigeonholed in, you know, Galatians or something. And like you sort of reduce Paul to just his teaching on justification or something. Actually, I think Paul was way more interested, for instance, in the spirit. And if you were to ask me, and this is a judgment call that any teacher would have to make, but if you were to ask me, Todd, what, was the most, what do you suppose was the most animating feature in Paul's thought life? I think it's kind of a no-brainer. It's the eschaton. I think that animated all of Paul's thought. The present of the future is here, and that future is coming, and Paul thought quickly, and that this then ought to dictate how we think about all of life. So what Paul wants us to think is something, something like this. The world is not bad. It's created by God, and he called it good. I think Paul would want us to think something like this. The world simply is. There's an isness to it. It just is. But, crucially, it's passing away. And so that means we, so you say, okay, so what? What does that mean? Interesting little bit of theology, but what's that mean? What it means is, is that because it's passing away, we then can live totally free of its control, its dominating power, its assumptions, and its value systems. So really, this is a passage steeped in pastoral care. Paul is giving his opinion to benefit them, right? Remember the beginning of this passage? It's fascinating. Paul says, I'm not aware, and Peter's never told me. I mean, James, none of us are aware that Jesus ever taught specifically on this problem. Um, but as someone who has received his mercy, I can say what I think the Lord might say about this. 
But this is to benefit you. This is not to lay down rules, but really it's to teach them to think wisely about difficult issues. You might say to think Christianly about issues that come up in our culture. How do we think Christianly about these things? And of course, he grounds it in Ephesians 5.10, remember where he says, find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord about this arrangement you're in. Find out what pleases the Lord about your marriage. Find out what pleases the Lord about your singleness. That's the key. So for Paul, knowing that we live in the presence of the future changes everything and allows one to live without anxiety. Now, again, we have to be careful to say that's not a moralism. Paul's not saying stop living with anxiety, you know, like bad dog. This is not what's happening here. It's a gracious invitation. You don't have to live with anxiety. So let's say it was a few years ago, and we all live in California, at least most of us here, and let's say you couldn't stand Schwarzenegger, and it's only weeks until his reign is over. It's passing away, so it no longer has to dictate over you. That's what Paul's talking about. This world as we know it is passing away. You know, just like, you know, whoever you don't like in politics, when that rain is over, it's passing away. Oh, God, thank God. You know, that administration is over. This is something like Paul's thing. The administration of this world as you've known it is over. It's already in a sense, it's been judged. Jesus has already come and brought the beginning of the future. So you say, okay, now what? Now, not a moralism, but an invitation. You can now live in freedom that that which was over you is gone and you can enter into the yoke of Jesus, which is light and easy. Again, this is why thinking of our gospel reading, this is not a moralism. When Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, again, he's not saying bad dog. He's saying you don't have to be. You can be free from that. And that actually anxiety can't add anything to your life. But what can? Seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And then all these other things will be added to you. Again, this is one of my favorite passages in the message where Eugene has um, Jesus saying, what I want you to do is steep your life in God reality, in God initiative, in God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. So Paul's vision here is when it comes to marriage or engagement or singleness is that we don't allow those things to complicate our lives unnecessarily. Wants us to just keep it simple, dealing as sparingly as possible with the things that the world thrusts on us because the world as we see it is on its way out. Now we have to say, because the question's obviously there, well, what did Paul think about singleness and marriage? And it's obvious that Paul did in this ad hoc context That is to say, in Corinth, with its problems with super spirituality and stoicism, and given the fact that the the world is changing quickly as Paul sees it, he actually does prefer singleness. But this is where the passage is tricky. In a sense, that's not his point. His point is to say, but I don't agree with that. Don't you ascetics, don't think I'm agreeing with you that sex or marriage is bad. And you stoics, I'm not agreeing with you. 
I'm saying singleness is to be preferred for pastoral reasons, for practical end-time reasons. But then he's quick to say, the married in the church aren't second-class citizens either. He says marriage is a spiritually and moral right thing. It's not inferior, inferior to singleness in any way. And although, he says, as I indicated earlier, because of the times we live in, I do have pastoral reasons for encouraging singleness. But essentially what he's saying is, do what's best to free you from the grip of this passing away world and its values. So that's all sort of background to conclude this way. Because I I know enough from working and leading in the church for 40 years that this leaves uh, a very deep question unanswered. And that is, what does it mean to be a single person? What does it mean to be human as a single person? And so I want to say a few things in conclusion. First, I mean, is it Beyonce? I'm hearing all you single ladies. No, sorry, I'm just kidding. Um, is that Beyonce? I don't know. Um, so here's the first thing to say. Um, I not only say this as your loving colleague in Christ, um, but I say this standing on apostolic and biblical tradition. Here's the first thing to say. You are already, my dear single friends, the ultimate creation. And you are already in the ultimate family. That's what's real about you. Whether you come from a culture that says you're nothing unless you're married, or from the sexualized culture that says you're nothing unless you're finding your wholeness in sex, that's not real or true. What's real or true is you are already ultimate creation. It's nothing better than who you are and what you are right now. And you are already in the ultimate family. Secondly, thinking of Psalm 8, as Beth led us through it this morning, and the message has it, I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. And this is obviously just David gazing up through the, you know, the, the naked eye. But I, I just read this weekend that uh, the, the new analysis of the Hubble telescope data is telling us that there are now 10 times more galaxies in the universe than we once thought there were. There's not 200 billion of them, there's 2 trillion of them that we can see through Hubble, David could only see with his naked eye. And so then David says, I then look at my micro self and wonder, what is the significance of my single life? Why do you bother with us singles? Why take a second look our way? And here's why for all my beloved singles. You have been put in charge of God's handcrafted world. That's the answer of Psalm 8. God crafted all this from the air we breathe here to everything the Hubble telescope sees. You have been invited into God to work with him in that. Who am I as a single person? Psalm 139 says, I created your inmost being. I knit you together in your mother's womb. My eyes saw your unformed body. Why does God give a second thought 
to single people. Because as he said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. Or if I had a a magic wand that I could wave over all my beloved single friends in this room, it would be that you would take to heart this lovely definition of what it means to be a person from Dallas Willard. Here's what it means to be single. You are a never-ceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny to walk with and work with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, as we have a moment of quiet here, an Ignatian view of what Paul was saying might talk about it in terms of detachment or indifferent. You know, Paul's saying, don't let the world define you. Ignatius might say something like, yes, we need an indifference towards the world, detachment from it. That is to say, Ignatius of Loyola would say something like this, make use of those things that are in the world in this present age as they help bring you closer to God. But Ignatius would be quick to say to leave aside those things that don't. And Paul would add, because the time is short. So Ignatius teaches us to ask, how does my life in the world with its people and events, how does it draw me to God? Or how might it be drawing me away from God? And in those places, I need detachment or indifference. So we have a quiet moment here. Maybe you could bow your head and close your eyes and just begin to wonder with the Spirit guiding you, from what this morning might you need some detachment? You can see what that is. Begin now to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to see it clearly for what it is. To give you the power to let it go.